Well, good morning, everyone. It's so good to be with you guys this morning uh, on this Independence Day weekend. I hope you guys had a great time celebrating the holiday yesterday. Um, I know that there's lots of things that are always going on on the holidays, and there's always ways to celebrate the freedom we have as a country, and what better way to do that than to eat four uh, entrees in one course, right? So a burger, a steak, a hot dog, all in one, right? And uh, just because I'm sure you guys had to get the energy you needed to, you know, play with explosives last night. So um, I hope you guys had a good time anyway doing that. Um, So I'm a new dad. Uh, I have a six-month-old, and she's a blast, and I love joining the club. It's been a lot of fun. Love her to death. And uh, but being a new dad affords me the opportunity to tell corny jokes. So I was trying to find a good joke for you guys this morning, and I really couldn't find any that were worthwhile. But there's one on uh, the Liberty Bell. You might want to just look up later. It's going to crack you up. It's good. Yeah, I just went there. All right. Um, anyway, so we've been in this series just starting last week called uh, What's the Difference? And as Ben mentioned, um, you're going to want to take a look, I think, again at Pastor Jeff's message from last week. So if you missed it, I highly recommend going back, catch you up so you can understand a little bit more of kind of the foundation, laying the groundwork of what it is that we're talking about, similar to the video. You, know, you have to know what you're comparing it to, to really know what, it is, uh, what else is we're looking at. If you did catch it last week, I actually still recommend that maybe you go back and uh, listen to it again, because I think it's one of those messages that's not only foundational to the series, but truly foundational to the way that we believe, the way that we think, uh, the faith that we have as followers of Jesus. And so I know I need to listen to good things over and over for them really to sink in. So I want to recommend doing that. Now, in the same kind of vein of this kind of conversation, um, this coming Thursday night, if you're uh, within the age range of 18 to 28, our new Perspective Ministry is going to be having one of their central gatherings. Uh, it's a great opportunity to connect, meet other folks in that age group. It's, a, it's an awesome, awesome ministry, but they're doing that Elephants in the Room series, and so they're going to be answering uh, and talking through some tough questions about faith as well, and this particular week, one of the questions they'll be talking through is, how can we know that Jesus is the only way? And so it'll really kind of be a great uh, kind of caveat, segue, continuum of the conversation we're having together here, so make sure you check that out as well. So as I mentioned, Jeff started this series off. It's been a great kickoff. Uh, Looking forward to today, talking about the difference between uh, what followers of Christ would believe and grasp onto uh, and that of Islam. And so we'll be talking about the differences between those two things. Um, But I want to kind of go back to just a foundational statement that Jeff gave us last week, summing up the idea of the gospel. Um, The gospel is this. It's that I am a sinner Jesus is the only Savior. My salvation is received because of God's favor as a free gift when I humble myself and repent of my sin and ask God for forgiveness. It's a, it's a free gift. It's a relationship that gets started with Christ. And it's all based on who Jesus is, what he's done, what he's doing, and what he will do. And we have to lock on to that if we're really going to be able to understand what God has to offer us. So today... With that in mind, we're going to actually move through some history of where the Muslim faith came from, look at what the Bible uh, says about it, some of its origins actually in the scripture, kind of talk through some of the contemporary differences of what a Muslim would believe compared to a follower of Christ today, and then kind of talk through a little bit about 
how maybe we can respond uh, maybe appropriately and powerfully um, and graciously uh, to those of a different faith. And so we're gonna dive right into a passage. Uh, So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open them up to the book of Galatians in chapter three. If you don't have a Bible, there are some in the chairs in front of you. Uh, If you wanna open up one of those, we're actually gonna be on page 811 in those Bibles. We also use um, the YouVersion app, so if you have a smartphone, tablet, whatever, uh, you can open up the YouVersion app, and um, we have a live event there that you can follow along with our zip codes 44333. So I encourage you to open up one way or another to Galatians 3. Now this book is being written, it's actually a letter written to the church of Galatia, that's why it's called Galatians. And the Apostle Paul who wrote this letter is one of the key Christian leaders of the time, okay? He's one of the guys really helping understand the foundation of what the faith is. He's uh, been really an incredible worker for Jesus in that regard. But he's specifically writing this letter to address um, two types of believers, two believers that have different ways in which they kind of came to faith in that one group is the Jewish believers. So these are the ones that grew up in the Jewish faith, that were in the Hebrew tradition, okay? And then they realized that Jesus was in fact their savior, the Messiah, and gave their life to follow Christ. And then you have the Gentile believers, and the word Gentile really is just used in the scripture to describe anyone outside of the Jewish faith, okay? But so you have folks that weren't Jewish and that were, but they both came to faith in Christ. And the Jews, um, the Jewish believers, are trying to incorporate a little bit too much Jewish tradition into what it means to follow Jesus. And so that's what Paul is writing about here. So let's go ahead and start in verse 5 from chapter 3. And Paul says this, So again I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by works of the law or by your believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. So Paul is pulling out a couple of really neat distinctions here. The first of which is this understanding of doing things by the law. He's saying, did you get the favor of God? Did you receive the grace of God because of the things that you did to obey the law? Because the Jews, the Jewish believers were trying to convince everyone else that if you wanted to follow Jesus, You need to accept Christ and the gift of salvation he offers, but then you also need to do uh, this, 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 A, B, C, D, and E, and all these other Jewish customs as well, because Jesus himself was raised Jewish, and therefore, those two must come together. But that's not what Jesus himself imposed and challenged. In fact, then Paul says, let's take a look at Abraham's faith, because his faith is actually what was credited to him as righteousness. It's what justified him. So it's actually very interesting that Paul is actually pointing backwards to the book of Genesis to say Abraham's story is what tells us to stick to the gospel. Okay, so he's saying go all the way back, and then just like we've been saying, Jesus plus nothing is what salvation is. Jesus is the answer and the way to salvation through faith in him. Now let's take a look kind of categorically at the scripture for a second. Everyone and anyone that's in the Bible that is a part of the family of God, they're saved, they've been brought into saving faith, is saved because of the work of Jesus. 
It doesn't matter if they're Old Testament or New Testament. The Old Testament and the New Testament are two different covenants that God established, but Jesus is the defining moment, the the dividing line, the hinge point of the Scripture. And so if someone had saving faith in the Old Testament before Christ, their faith was still in Jesus, but in what was to come, trusting God for his saving message that he would send a Savior to redeem them, it was still in that exact same vein of having faith in what God would do through the Messiah. In the New Testament, of course, their saving faith was looking back. This is what Jesus did, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. That is the hinge point of faith. We now trust in that and will follow him. So anyone in the scripture that is saved um, would have that faith in Christ. Paul is then pointing out that this is the same kind of faith that Abraham had. And this is where it gets interesting. Because Abraham is the father of of the Jewish religion, the Christian religion, and the Muslim religion, okay? All three of those faiths would point back to Abraham as the father of their faith. So let's unpack a little bit more here from Scripture. Flip the page or get the uh, Galatians chapter 4. And um, we're going to read a couple of verses here. There's a larger passage here that I recommend that you would read, uh, these 11 verses that you would dive into, but we're going to focus on these Two here in verse 22 and 23, Paul says, it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman, the other by the free woman. And his son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of the divine promise. Okay, let's get into some Bible story here to kind of fill you in on what's going on here. And you can read some of this Bible story in Genesis 15 and following if you want to later today or this week. But we have the guy Abraham. And Abraham was promised directly by God that his descendants, his offspring, his children and so forth, his legacy would be a blessing to the nation's Uh, all over the world, that his descendants would outnumber the grains of sand, that they would outnumber the stars in the sky, that he would have uh, tons and tons of influence and again be a blessing to the multiple nations. But here's the problem. Abraham is getting old, really old, and his wife is as well, and they still haven't had a child. And in fact, his wife, Sarah, has been deemed barren. She's not able to have children. So Abraham and Sarah are kind of sitting there And they're like, well, how in the world is this going to happen? God promised these descendants. God promised these children. And yet, here we are, Abraham's in his 80s. What's going to happen? How could we make this move? Now, Sarah gets the bright idea that God needs her help. Now, let me take a moment and just give you a take-home moment right here. There is never a good time to try to fill in the gap for God. Okay, whenever you think to yourself, I'm pretty sure God's doing this, but he's not doing his part, so let me step in and do what God's supposed to do, is not a good idea. Okay, so if you're single in the room and you're like, man, I just wish I had someone, I wish I had someone to latch on to, to marry, do not start dating someone outside of God's plan. That never works. Okay, it never works to start purposely dating someone you know is not good for you. Uh, If you're financially struggling, this is not the time to start cheating on your taxes. This is not the time to start lying and throwing things under the table and all those kind of things because God's supposed to bless me financially. So I just need to fill in the gap to make that happen. Um, This is one of those times where the phrase, the, uh, the means or the end justifies the means, 
does not work, right? We can't just fill in the gap. And yet, that's exactly what Sarah's doing. And she thinks to herself, okay, apparently God needs my help. I can't have kids. I got an idea. Abraham, why don't you go sleep with our servant girl? There's a marriage class starting in a couple of weeks. No, like, that's a terrible idea, right? Like, if... (laughs) Yeah, just go sleep with her. That'll be great. Um, Abraham should have known better, but instead Abraham in all of his glory was like, all right, good idea. Um, And he sleeps with the servant girl, and she gets pregnant. She gives birth to a son named Ishmael. Now, um, proving that God knows exactly what he's talking about, 14 years later, Ishmael, of course, now is 14 years old. Guess who gets pregnant? Sarah. Now, it's crazy because Abraham is 100 years old and Sarah is 86 years old. And every woman in the room who's had a child just went, whoa, <laughs> like 86, having her first child. Imagine those sleepless nights. Um, but she finally gives birth to a son named Isaac. Okay, now, those in the Muslim tradition would point their heritage back through the son Ishmael, the first son born of the servant woman. Okay, those in the Jewish faith and then the Christian faith would point their, their spiritual lineage and their actual lineage back through the son Isaac. Now this is where things get a little bit crazy because you can imagine you have a 14-year-old son who suddenly just realized that he got kind of pushed to the side because the child of promise has been born. The child that God promised to start the legacy of Abraham and Sarah has now entered the scene and now jealousy hits and God even says that this tumultuous relationship is going to last for thousands of years. Now here's the deal though. God promised that he would make a great nation out of both sons. Out of both sons. And so we continue to read about that in Genesis 21 if you want to write that down and read it later. Now here's the crazy thing. In verse 22 that we read, Paul says, for it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman, one by the free woman. Paul wrote this passage to the Galatians over 500 years before Muhammad ever hit the scene. Over 500 years before Islam was even in existence. And Paul's writing about, here's how this is starting to play out spiritually amongst these two nations, amongst these two people groups, amongst, amongst these two faith groups. He's pointing out that there's that which is born by the flesh or born with the servant girl, okay? And that's because it's out of trying to do it on our own effort. Sarah, Abraham, they were trying to figure out how to do what God promised on their own. They were trying to do, well, obviously I have to do what God said, And that was how we got Ishmael. But then the child of promise, out of faith, out of the divine result of God, is where we get Isaac, and we begin to see that lineage happen there. Now in verse 28 in Galatians 4, Paul points out, now you brothers and sisters like Isaac are children of promise. You see, Jesus is Isaac's great, 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 great grandson. Okay, Jesus is in the actual lineage of Isaac. And Paul is now pointing out that as you unite your life to Jesus, as you give your life to him, as you become a child of promise, you become a part of that co-heirship. You become a brother and sister, a child of promise. 
And so the question here between the two is really, who's your mama? Okay, are you tracing back to Hagar and the, the, um, the desire to do this on your own and get your way to what God is saying on your own or back through Sarah and Isaac and trying to understand and trust in the promise and the life that God offers? So we have two sons, two very different relationships, one forced, one promised. Now let's take a look at some of how this has played out over time and some of the differences now that we see between the two faiths. So first of all, foundationally, um, both faiths go to two different um, holy set of scriptures, okay? And so Islam uh, would go to the Quran. The Quran was a book that was written in 610 by the prophet Muhammad. Muhammad was said to be visited by an angel. The angel gave him the words of God, of words of Allah, to write down in the Quran, and then those words became the holy scriptures of the Muslim faith. It took about 22 years to write all those things down, and that would be the Quran. On the flip side, New Testament Christianity, Christianity obviously we go back to the Bible. The Bible, Old New Testament, about 66 books. I say about, it's 66 books. Um, peach and Spediment comes out every once in a while. It's not what I mean to say. But, um, so as these 66 books, Old Testament, New Testament, over 40 different authors putting these pieces of literature together over 1,500 years divinely given by God himself, but to multiple authors and weaving the line and the purpose and the plan together throughout all of them over centuries. Jesus is mentioned in both, um, and so are some of the other Bible characters, but in the case of Jesus in particular, in the Quran, Jesus is a teacher. He's a prophet. He's one of the good guys, so to speak, and that would be it. He'd be finitely put into that box. In the, in the Bible, of course, Jesus is presented as the Son of God, God incarnate. Um, it talks about the witnesses that saw him not only live his life, die on the cross, but also the hundreds and hundreds of witnesses that saw him walking and doing ministry after he resurrected. Um, the, so the Bible paints this clear portrait of who Jesus is. Um, the Bible is inspired by um, it's God-breathed, the scripture would say. It's inspired, literally means breathed into um, by God. So we have these different texts that both faiths would go to for their holy scriptures. The second big difference is the fact that there's a different gospel, okay? The biggest reason there's a different gospel is because in Islam there is no gospel, okay? In Islam, it's very much the fact that there is no savior and you need to save yourself, there's scale-tipping judgment at the end. Did you do enough good things to outweigh your bad? And that is what your salvation will be dependent on. And there's no way to know where the scales are at until you would stand before Allah. This is literally religion in its purest sense. It's how to work towards God. It's practices to keep. It's hoops to jump through. Now, the New Testament, the Bible, on the other hand, would talk about the fact that this is the gospel, that it's grace through faith in Christ, um, that it's good news, and we can't achieve news. News is something that we're told about, and it's a merciful Father inviting us into his family. Okay, it's a very different understanding of how this works. As we give our lives to Christ, as far as the gospel is concerned, we become a child of promise alongside um, what we were talking about with Abraham there. It's from a father who loves us, who cares for us, who gives himself for us. Uh, this is the gospel. It's the idea that it's Jesus plus nothing. 
And that is everything. That is the gospel. So the reason that this is a big deal is because there's a big difference here that really sets the two kind of apart in their understanding of who God is, and that's the fact that it sets up a very different view of who God is and how he works with us, a very different view of God. Now, in Islam, there's Allah, right? And Allah is one God. He is the only God. He is the powerful God. And he is very much a saved by works alone and therefore a fear-driven type of God. You must follow these things or else, and by the way, you won't know if your or else is there until it's too late. There's no trinity. So if you're familiar with the church or if you're familiar with Christ, uh, you probably know that Christians believe that God is the Trinity. He's the God, the Father. He's God, the Son. He's God, the Holy Spirit. Three and one, one and three, they go together. That would be a sin to view God that way in Islam. To see God as Father would be sin. God is not relational in Islam, and his ultimate virtue is power, okay? It's, uh, matter of fact, Allah even means the powerful one. Now, in the Quran, it talks about the fact that at the end of your life, there is a literal scale, and this scale um, would actually be taken care of. You have these angels recording everything that you've done, everything that you haven't done, and they're balancing those scales at the end, and then hopefully you've done more good than bad, and hopefully the scale tips in your favor, and hopefully the judge who has no mercy will be able to say you are fine, but otherwise, of course, you're not. The main ways that Muslims would be working to put the scale in their favor is through what's called the five pillars of Islam. And those five pillars are these five things. First of all, it's to confess the faith that Allah is the only God and Muhammad his, mess- Muhammad, his messenger. That you would be involved with prayer five times a day and that prayer would be facing Mecca, which is the city in Saudi Arabia where the angel approached Muhammad. Then you would fast during the month of Ramadan. And you would fast during that month because that's the month that the angel revealed the Quran to Muhammad. You would give alms. 2.5% of your income would be given to the poor and to the needy. And then the fifth thing, you would make a pilgrimage to Mecca, um, which uh, if you were more financially able, you would make that pilgrimage more than once. But every Muslim should try to make that pilgrimage at least once in their life. So you could imagine the fear, the worry, the the scared mentality behind how good is good enough? Have I prayed enough? What about that time that I missed prayer on Tuesday morning? What about that time that I only gave 2.3% of my income? Uh, What about um, the fact that I was never financially able to get to Mecca? Or what if I'm wealthy and maybe I didn't go to Mecca enough? Um, You can see that it's always a question, is what I did enough to be in favor with God. Now the scary part is, and we'll actually dive into this in a second, but the scary part is this actually might be the mentality that some of us have as believers in the Christian God. But we'll get into that in a second. Now, in the New Testament, the Bible shows us that God is in fact relational. It's a different view of God. It's not this constant fear, is God going to judge me every moment that I make a decision? But instead, it's relational. And this really comes from the fact that God, in his very essence, is, in fact, relational. So because he's 
a part of the Trinity. If God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, there's relationship. They talk to one another. They encourage one another. They serve one another. They, whole, they um, holistically love one another. Um, before creation, they were in relationship. Before creation, they talked. And so as they created, they were able to then extend that very desire to be a loving, relational God into its creation. That is the plan, that he now wants to share that relationship, that love with us. It's natural for God to be love-driven. In Romans chapter 8, Paul's writing to the church in Rome at this particular time, He illustrates some of this desire for God to be loving, and he says this, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So there's a Savior, and because of the work that the Savior has done, we can be adopted as children of God. The word Abba that was used there literally means daddy. Not, oh my gosh, I'm scared of dad, dad, but daddy, one that we can approach and latch onto and have relationship with We can learn from him. We're adopted by him. It's something totally, totally different than just the merciless judge alone. Now, here's why this is important. Because just to see God as judge can actually be very detrimental to how we interact with him. Okay? Yes, he would be able to declare us spotless, blameless, and holy. That would be a relief. But to see God as dad would change everything. Let me put this in these terms. I don't want to hang out with the judge. I don't want to go camping with the judge. I don't want to go see um, the Avengers Age of Ultron with the judge, right? I don't want to throw catch with the judge because the judge, what's he going to do? He's going to judge me. He has no mercy, right? I'm going to throw the ball and he's going to say, no, you should have put your foot over here and cocked back like this and throw, like, whoa, back off. We're just playing catch. We're going to go watch Avengers. He's like, no, Iron Man's suit can't actually do that. That would never happen in real life. Like, you can't use gamma radiation like that. Are you serious? Like, like, this would not happen. You're just watching with the judge. Suddenly, all the joy of life is completely sucked out because it's constantly judgeship. Again, I'm thrilled that he kind of banged the gavel down, so to speak, to tell me uh, that I'm uh, justified or not. But it's not a guy that I would really want to hang out with. Now, on the flip side, I would love to hang out with Dad. I'd love to. I want to go camping with dad. I want to go see the Avengers with dad. I want to hang out with dad. I want to play catch with dad. I want God, I want dad to be proud of me. I want dad to know my heart. I want to know dad's heart. I want to connect with him. And for for all of us in the room, I would think if you have a great relationship with your dad, that resonates. And if you don't have a great relationship with your dad, that still might resonate. We, we want that relationship with dad. And when God offers to be seen as Abba, as daddy, that changes our perspective on who God is. 
And on top of that, being adopted into the family of God, it's not like we get adopted and then he hides us in the corner, like, oh, my adopted children are over here. No, he says we're co-heirs with Christ. We're in equal standing with Jesus. We come alongside him. We're not the black sheep in the family. We're his children. Now, I'm a new dad, as I mentioned before. I get this six-month-old little peanut at home that I love, and she's, man, she has me wrapped around her little finger. I, I can't believe what she's done to me already. It's only been six months. It's just getting started. I'm in trouble. I remember the first time I walked into Babies R Us, and I'm just like, I'm going to spend a lot of money. <laughs> I mean, and the first times I'm going to hear the words, but daddy, oh, I'm done. Melted, gone. She can't even say it yet, and I feel like she's already got that there. But listen, our relationship right now, at the moment, is pretty simple and standard. She poops, she eats, she sleeps. Not much last night. <laughs> but it's pretty standard. But let me tell you something. I can't wait for her to say, I love you, Dad. I can't wait for her to say, I want to hang out with you, Daddy. Can we play? Can we watch this movie together? Wow, that's going to rock my world. Already, she's six months old. She poops in my hand. Like, that's all, that's all I want. <laughs> it's for her to say those things to me. You wouldn't think, if you pooped in my hand, that's not the relationship we have. <laughs> Let me tell you something. My college football days will come back like a vengeance with you. Okay. <laughs> but that's God's view of us. That he longs for you to say, I love you. I want to hang out with you. I want to learn from you. And see, when that's our relationship with dad, then dad can be the good judge. No problem. Of course I'm going to teach my daughter some things like please don't reach toward the hot stove. Please don't run into oncoming traffic. There are going to be things in life that of course I'm going to instill in her. I want to give her my very best on what it would mean to live life, to love life, to experience life. I want her to treat my wife right, right? There's all kinds of things that I'm going to teach my kid that's going to be judge-ish. Like no, that's not right. We don't treat people like that. We do, right? Because I'm dad. And now that relationship makes sense. If you want to see God, get to know Jesus. Read the New Testament. Begin to see God as the loving Father offering relationship to you, adopting you into the family. My prayer for us is that we would understand the gospel like this. That we would see God as a God that's offering that relationship directly of father to child to us. As Paul put it, that we would see ourselves as son and daughters of freedom, not children of slavery, locked into trying to make sure we do all the right things because otherwise God's going to smite us. Now for a lot of us, as we think about Islam... We might think of that religion as very different, very foreign, something we don't understand. I'm not really sure I get it. 
especially since a lot of all that we get to see is extremism. Man, I don't get that. I can't imagine. But the danger is that we can actually fall into the same camp as Muslims on a pretty regular, it'd be pretty easy to start thinking more and more like them. We can tend to begin to view God as only a scale-watching God. That we start going, am I doing enough to have a relationship with God? We can start thinking things like, well, as long as I'm praying enough, God won't hate me. Well, as long as I read my Bible enough, I'll be okay. As long as I give enough money, as long as I help the poor, as long as I make my weekly pilgrimage to the church, God won't kick me out. And we start thinking back toward the same type of almost five pillars of Islam type of mentality that as long as I do these things, the scale will be tipped in my favor. And that's not at all the invitation that God is giving to us. Jesus already paid our debts. If we give our lives to him, we become children of promise, the co-heirs, and we're free. We're family now, and I can interact with God as daddy. That's what I hope each and every one of us would come to continually understand. Now, when we have conversations with folks that find themselves in the Muslim faith, we have to realize that Islam is just one more of the many schemes of the devil. It's one more religion that's trying to pull people away from who God is because he wants you to not be in the family of God. He wants you to misunderstand the intentions of God so that you can't spread the love and the message of who he is. Islam is no more false than Buddhism or Hinduism or any other religion It's unfortunately a a group of folks that are acting outside of the mercy and understanding of God. Now let's deal with the elephant in the room. It can be hard for us to be compassionate toward a group of people who seem to alter our way of life. Stereotypically, they might slow us down in the airport. At least that might be what's in our mind. We see certain images flash across the news or across the TV, and we're, of course we're only showed the extreme things. No one reports on boring Islamic activity. And we suddenly think to ourselves, wow, I'm really angry here. I can't, how could I be compassionate toward that? But this is not how God sees them. You see, God sees them and loves them and he gave himself for them. And he offers his hand of invitation to be in the family to them. God sees people in the Muslim faith the same way I see my daughter Ainsley. He wants them to join him in relationship. He wants to adopt them into the family. Now I realize that it's hard sometimes to do that. Because we see things sometimes wrapped up in politics and we see things wrapped up in a lot of confusion and sometimes even a lot of propaganda. But the fact of the matter is we need to move from making sure we don't see them as our enemy. That's not how God sees them. And even if you can't get past that, 
If you're having a really hard time getting past the fact that they may or may not be our enemy, I would challenge you, based on what we've said, to really work hard on that. But if you can't, fine. Because Jesus says to pray for and to love our enemies. Our response is one that is spiritual. I don't think Jesus anywhere, anytime, would just say, well, let's just nuke them. It's not happening. I think Jesus instead would continue to call us to exercise love and patience, kindness, gentleness, and forgiveness, extending the hand of invitation into the family. You see, just because it's weird to us, just because it's weird to me, weird to you, it doesn't change the message. It doesn't matter if somebody's atheist, doesn't matter if they're Buddhist, doesn't matter if they're Muslim or a warlock. We're called to respond in the same way. You see, our job our job as followers of Jesus is to love. That's our role. That's our job. That we would share the message of Christ, that we would invite them into the family, but it's always been about love. It's never been about you're wrong, I'm right. It's always been about I want you to experience the truth in the life like I have. I want to invite you to become a son and a daughter of Christ, to join in in being a, ch- a child of promise. If you've not given your life to Christ, and this sounds foreign to you anyway, understand that this invitation is open to everybody. God looks at you like I would look at my daughter Ainsley and loves you and wants to have a relationship with you and wants to show you what life would really look like if you connected with your Creator if you connected with your heavenly Father that loves you deeply and more than you can ever know. I would offer the invitation for you to talk to any of us in leadership or any of our volunteers today. Come find me after the service. Someone on stage today, there's a lot of great volunteers, red t-shirts, all those guys out there. They would love to chat with you about what it's like to be in the family of God. If you are a follower of Jesus that we need to make sure that we see things the way that God does, that we would be his ambassadors, that we would work as his children as if we were just telling others about our dad. You know what my dad showed me today? You know what my time hanging out with dad was like today? You know what dad's doing in my life? It's amazing. We love, we share, we invite the band's going to come up and we're going to reflect on with a couple of songs and I just want to challenge you to continue to think through that mindset that we're careful to remember to love our neighbor and to extend, extend that hand of invitation into the family of God. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for allowing me to be one of your children the depth of what that means can sometimes be overwhelming and I am so grateful. Father, help me to see others that don't have the same faith that I do the same way that you do, lovingly, the hand of invitation to point them to you, to help them know Jesus. Continue to work on our hearts, continue to help us 
extend the love and the grace that is just as much a part of your truth as anything else. That we would be family members just spreading the love of the family. Lord, we ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.